dealing with a movie like mine where you have suspense, you have murder, you have uh, all kinds of erotic things, and that you're always walking a very thin line. I grew up in a tough neighborhood. We used to say you can get further with a kind word and a gun than you can with just a kind word. I've got some sexual assistance. Do you want to fuck me? Say hello to my little friend! Murder has a sound all of its own. Welcome, film fans, to another Dipom cast. I know what you're saying. Where have you been? Guys, <laughs> where was our De Palm cast last month? I know. We feel you. We missed it, too. We were supposed to do something. It didn't happen. We are very, very sorry. We apologize that we didn't get you out of De Palm cast last month. But It's all Justin's fault. I, it probably was. <laughs> yeah, a lot of stuff happened, honestly, in, February, uh, in between our last De Palm cast which was Phantom of the Paradise, until now. But we want to thank you for tuning in to this De Palmcast. You guys picked it and wanted the 1981 American neo-noir mystery thriller blowout. Our patrons wanted it, I should yeah. amend. Well, that means if... Thank yeah, if you, patrons, one, for voting, yeah. if you're Yeah, if you're not one, become one. And then at the end of this episode, we'll give you information on how you can do that. But yeah, we're here to talk about uh, a De Palma movie, Brian, that doesn't really get discussed all that often by very many people. And it should. Yeah. Uh, it's one of his most critically praised films and also one of his most financially unsuccessful films. Um, it's also most definitely, um, depending on who you are and how you look at it, one of his best made films. There's a lot of elements in this movie, a lot of different themes and we're going to discuss that here in this episode. And Brian, so I guess, uh, you know, we always do this on every episode. Do you remember the first time you watched this movie? I watched it in film school. I feel like it's a movie that many film students watch in, in school because it's a movie about filmmaking, but it's not actually about filmmaking. It, it, it portrays a small yet pivotal part of the filmmaking process and that's kind of what drives the plot forward. It kind of has this life imitating art, imitating life uh, thesis to it. So, so we watched it in film school. What about you? Um, honestly, I think it was probably late twenties um, after I had found out that like dress to kill and body double were like my favorite things in the entire world is <laughs> um, I was discovering that there was more to De Palma than the untouchables and Scarface. And um it didn't hit me the way that it did much later on when I watched it again. And then again tonight, uh, I would love to see this oh, on 35 millimeter on the big screen. Uh, definitely one of his most visually intriguing movies ever um, with almost all the cinematography being done, like with natural lighting and on the streets of Philadelphia, uh, a place that De Palma knows like the back of his hand for obvious reasons. It's, it's just, I mean, I don't know, man. There's something so special about the look of this movie um, and the locations in this movie. And obviously we have here at the forefront as our main character, John Travolta, 
which at the time was a huge star. Um, this film did not at all in any way, shape or form help his career. Um, but obviously John started out his career with Brian, with Carrie um, in terms of his big screen debut. So he returned here and wanted De Palma's wife, Nancy Allen, to be his co-star. He actually specifically asked for her because of his work on Carrie with her. I love the chemistry they had. And uh, De Palma was kind of uh, against the idea at the time because they were married and was like, I don't want her to her career to revolve around all of my movies. And obviously he succumbed to the request by Mr. Travolta and she's in the movie. And we're going to get into the characters in a little bit. But I, I, I think that uh, the chemistry between the two, the characters as a whole in this movie are very well written, very well rounded and very well portrayed. So this movie, as we said earlier on, not a success. Uh, budget of $18 million and grossed only of 13.8. Uh, despite the positive reviews, the film absolutely floundered at the box office. And we'll talk about why that is, for the most part, at the end of the discussion, because it has to do with what's in the movie itself. So spoilers. Um, yes, of course, um, I'm pretty sure if you are tuning in to listen to a De Palmcast episode of the Epic Film Guys podcast on Blowout, you've probably seen the movie. Um, I would, and if you recommend... haven't, <laughs> pause the review right now and go watch it, and then come yeah. back to it. Watch the movie. I know Loisas owns it. Criterion, you said, did a beautiful transfer of the film. Restoration's gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it, I'm pretty sure. Correct me if I'm wrong, Loisas. It's the only Brian De Palma movie on. Criterion, except, no, except for Dress to Kill. To kill. Mm-hmm. Except for Dress to Kill. That's the, I mean, I own, that's my holy grail right there sitting on my shelf. So, so yeah, uh, we're going to get into the movie. So, I got to say, man, I absolutely fucking adore how this movie opens. And I think I know why De Palma opened the movie the way he did. Because he knew his audience was, quote, ready for anything. So, dude, the movie opens... It's a straight up slasher flick with naked chicks randomly dancing to disco music while the cop gets his ass knifed in the back as we see a killer peeping through a window, watching a couple fucking each other's brains out and then a random blonde rubbing one out in her bedroom. There is a shower sign, Loisos, in which you see this this knife killer uh, going towards a door and the, the sign on the door says the shower. <laughs> I mean, it couldn't be any more blatant. Um, and I don't know how you feel about this, but you could tell the Palm was having so much fun. The movie came out in 1981. So this is the pinnacle after Friday the 13th in which the slasher genre was taking over cinemas and grindhouses everywhere. You could tell he's just like literally riffing on the slasher genre that was so popular downright to the this classic slasher music. How fun is that opening? I mean, if you watch this movie for the first time, you don't even really know. Is this the movie or is this something else? You don't even really know what it is. Well, it's a banger of an opening scene. Uh, We're basically watching a film within a film. And it's through the eyes of the psycho killer's perspective. So uh, this is the first film in which De Palma employed the Steadicam in order to convey, you know, seeing events through the killer's eyes. And the inventor of the Steadicam, Garrett Brown, actually shot this sequence 
at this very elaborate tracking shot, which obviously required a lot of coordination and making everything flow just right. My only complaint with this sequence is that there's a very obvious cut in which we're outside, the killer's peering in through the windows, and then it just cuts and the killer's suddenly inside. You, you never see uh, the point of view of the killer entering the building. It should have been one seamless cut, in my opinion, but... You know what? Devil's advocate here, brother. I think the reason he did it is because at the time, Halloween aside, even though Halloween and its steady cam opening, there's a cut. You couldn't see that it was there. I'm sure all directors watching it would have known that it was there. But all of the subpar, lower level, shitty B fucking slashers that we love so dearly, they rarely ever got a shot that good. So I think they were just emulating the quality of the films that were being released and making money at the time. That's a very, that's a very good point. I think, I mean, the ultimate punchline of the scene is that we're watching a filthy, trashy exploitation film. And it's a good, that sounds so good. And it's a good thing because De Palma could literally go as over the top as he wanted because it's a parody of not only slasher films, but really his own prior work. I think he's taking the piss out of himself a little bit with this opening oh, sequence. Of course. I mean, this is this is post-Dress to Kill, and he got so much fucking heat for that movie. So obviously he's just like, hey, critics, look at this. Yeah, and I think he mentioned in an interview that he had such a great time shooting this sequence because he kept upping the ante. He he just wanted to see how much sleaze and sex he could cram into one scene. Yeah, every time they shot extra scenes, he, they were just adding more stuff. Like, hey, we can do this. We can do this. Dude, I mean, you got to admit, it's a, a brilliant way to open your movie. And then, and you know, of course, the, he couldn't resist referencing Psycho because you have a murder oh, in, a, in a shower. <laughs> Except in this time, you actually see the woman's breasts and her breasts, torso. Her, 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 her chicken brists, if you will. Beautiful. Uh, it's funny because you know, like a few minutes later, when we see our, our main character, Jack Terry, sitting in the booth as they're recording sound for this film, uh, the dude next to him, his boss is like, I didn't hire her for her scream. I heard her for her tits. <laughs> uh, I was like, yeah, well, that, that, that's how those movies were made. And that's why we love them so 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 much um but that scream is literally the worst scream i've ever heard voice sauce it's the equivalent of pulling the tail of a mule and hearing the sound coming out of that fucking thing's mouth dude it's it's hilarious because i mean all right the worst of the worst slashers i i doubt i've heard a scream that bad but it's so laughable it's hard to not like laugh out loud while you're watching the movie definitely and of course that's a running joke that goes throughout the film because they keep hiring actresses to dub over the original actress and they're just as bad if not worse than she is (laughs) but it it is an exciting concept i love the fact that he decided to make the movie about a sound editor making shitty b horror movies yeah there's there's like a whole list he talks about. I'm pretty sure he talks about that. He worked on blood feast and Bordello, Bordello of blood. blood. Yeah. And a couple other movies. And I'm like, there's a lot of references to movies that I actually love. Um, in the opening of the movie, we see Jack walking through the hallway and I spotted a poster for the 1980 cult horror classic, the boogeyman, uh, the alien flick with Jack Palance without warning. There's a squirm poster on the wall outside of his office in there. Like obviously 
it seems as though they used a real movie studio, if you will, or, you know, little B movie office. But um, I, I love those little references that I think at the time no one would have paid attention to. But now in retrospect, we're like all these fucking hardcore horror junkies sitting there going, look at, dude, look at that, the poster on the wall. Did you, did you see, did you see the poster on the wall? It's, it's some pretty cool little uh, Easter eggs in there that were obviously p- probably not even intentional at the time, but now we're looking at it like, dude, so cool. I think I love too this kind of, of course it wouldn't be De Palma if we didn't mention Hitchcock, but this kind of Hitchcockian yarn of um, a man caught up in a plot way bigger than he ever bargained for so of course i just love the way that the movie unfolds in first presenting you this character who has this has this job and that in itself would have made an interesting enough movie but it's it's kind of the inception for everything else that happens afterwards because you know one night he's recording sounds for his next movie and he very serendipitously bears witness to and and captures audio of uh, a car's tire blowing out and the car plummets into the river. And inside the car is a deceased state governor and a young woman, Sally, played by Nancy Allen, who Jack rescues. And together they kind of find themselves in the middle of this vast conspiracy uh, much like a Hitchcock film, like North by Northwest yep, yep. or something like that. And and much of the joy of watching the movie is discovering that mystery along with them. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you can see where De Palma was pulling for a lot of his influences on this. I mean, Watergate is a huge one. Um, John F. Kennedy assassination. Exactly. Incident yeah. at Chappaquiddick so many things and and as a result i mean i think the film has like a a a political pertency because he is drawing influence from all these very different real world historical events that that play on i think the general anxiety that americans have of political assassinations and all of that yeah i mean he he sees basically this assassination in front of him that's a question i want to ask you uh do you think based on the reactions to his last few films leading up to blowout that De Palma was actually, you know, considering the fact that he actually wrote this himself and directed it himself, he was trying to go, listen, I'm a real filmmaker. I'm trying again to show you that, you know, I'm adding politics in here. Like, hey, listen, I'm an auteur. I'm not just this guy that likes to see women being chopped up by razor blades. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think that, do you think he was actually, I mean, this is his attempt at trying to show people I'm more than just the guy with the knife in the woman's face. I think Blowout has loftier aspirations than something like Body Double or Dress to Kill. I think it has, I think it shows De Palma growing in maturity and growing as a filmmaker. But I still think the movie works like Gangbusters as a straight ahead white knuckle thriller. I mean, and it has elements, you know, it's comprised of many of the same elements that crop up time and again in his work you know, paranoia and obsession and murder. And it's kind of in the style of a film noir or a giallo. I, I think that he just had more on his mind with this movie. And it, and it shows in kind of the labyrinthine plot that the characters find themselves in and the characters as they're written and portrayed themselves, I think uh, really kind of round out the movie and make it, make it just a more full and richer experience than something like body double, which 
is an amazing movie, but there's not really much going on underneath the surface. There's not. And I, I think my point that I was trying to make, and I just wanted to pull it out of you to see if you were feeling the same way, is that he actually shows a little bit of restraint here. I mean, the deaths are done beautifully. They look gorgeous. I love seeing them with uh, Pino Dinaggio's. Oh God, it is a masterpiece of a fucking score. Let's just put it that way behind it. But it, it's not as blatant. It's not as on the nose. Yeah. We see women getting strangled and attacked by the Liberty Bell strangler, uh, John Lithgow here. Oh, God damn it. He, how versatile of an actor is that dude? I mean, seriously, there's nothing he, he can't do. He's still working in Hollywood today. And that he's a blessing to each and every one of us. Anytime he acts in something we get to watch. I mean, dude, he still looks the same as he did. Then he's just younger looking with the bald head then. But I mean, De Palma always said he makes for such a great villain. I don't know what it is. Um, but I, I, I feel like the movie just has a sense of class to it because there are more elements than just from point A to point B, someone gets chopped. There's mystery suspense, but he's trying to say something more here. And to me, that's why the movie is so intriguing at the right from the beginning. But my main question after that would be, can you really see John Travolta with that fucking cleft chin and that gorgeous fucking mane of hair and those beautiful eyes? Is he really a sound editor for B horror movies? Yeah, why not? Why not? Uh, I think what makes this movie work, aside from everything else, <laughs> is okay. is John Travolta's performance. I mean, I think he's incredibly believable as this character. Um, in and, terms of performance and character, yes. He just looks way too pretty and attractive to be hanging out in the middle of the night, making, you know, recording sounds of wind with an owl in the background and a frog. I mean, God, I love those little elements in there when you see the frog right in the front of the camera and the owl right there and all that. But um, masterful sequence it is. But I'm just like, dude, you should be like somewhere banging a bunch of chicks, or something. <laughs> which I'm sure he was doing at the time in real life. I mean, you know, but um, well, chicks and dudes, probably. Yes, actually, 100 <laughs> percent. I believe in that. Yes. I mean, dude, he was in Staying Alive, which I've never Come seen. On. What? Never seen Staying Alive. You also don't like Greece. So who are you and why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, no, no, it's an interesting choice for, for Travolta to do this because he did this. He did some other stuff. He did staying alive. And then his career slowly went down the shitter. Um, the main movie eventually, hopefully will become a B side in which I showed you half of it. Uh, the workout Oh God! Comedy perfect with Jamie Lee Curtis, <laughs> which is anything um, but. But um, yeah, unfortunately, this movie you would have think that it would be poised to be a huge hit. I I always do this before we do any discussion, before any movie review, and I watch the original classic trailer. And dude, it, the trailer would have blown me away back in 1981. It looks so exciting and so different, and yeah. No one went and saw it, but um, all that aside, <laughs> it's really unfortunate. But but as I was saying, I mean, I, I I think he's the character that you follow throughout, and you really grow to care about him. At the very beginning, he has this kind of boyish charm, this laid back quality about him. About him, 
He's a little cocksure, but you see the full transformation of the character when paranoia starts to overtake him. And he really is heavy hitting in those emotional scenes towards the end. I just think it's an incredibly accomplished performance. And um, apparently Al Pacino was the original choice. I think yeah, he the original choice. I think he would have done very well as the character. But Travolta, I, I, for my money, it's his best performance. Wow. So you're actually saying on tape right now. I love how I'm saying on tape on our digital fucking Internet recorder thing that we use for free. Um, you're actually saying this is Travolta's best performance. Yes. Not Pulp Fiction, Mm-mm. not not Grease, um, not Look Who's Talking To, <laughs> or Look Who's Talking Again, or whatever the fuck. I mean, wow. I mean, that that's a big statement, but I will have to agree with you that it's definitely one of his best performances. I mean, he's definitely sinking his teeth in here. Um, There's just a level of intensity and commitment that he brings to the performance. I love the scene. It's one of my favorites of the movie between him and detective Mackey in the police station. Oh dude. Yeah. It's just such a a well-acted scene and a great chemistry between both of them as well. They're they're like, you know, sparring and they say, you know, when you're an actor, you're only as good as, your opponent because like if you are um in a scene with an actor and and the actor's at a certain energy level or commitment level you want to try to meet him or top him or always top him yeah yeah, so the scene builds and i think it does absolutely so um i mean apparently this is one of quentin tarantino's favorite movies and he cast john travolta in pulp fiction based on no fucking way the strength of his performance in this. no fucking way see i've never heard that before so look at that i just learned something in one of our own episodes but i i'm i'm not shocked I know that when Quentin decided to cast him in Pulp Fiction, it was because of the amazing work he had done earlier on that a lot of people either didn't pay attention to or forgot because he was making look who's talking for the fucking babies talking on the dog's back while the dog's fucking the other dog movie. I don't know. What? <laughs> shit, weird shit happens in those movies. My wife had me rewatch look who's talking too. And the third one with when Danny DeVito voices the, the mangy fucking stray dog or whatever weird shit happens in those movies. Well, already then I guarantee you thousands of people will line up just to hear a full review on look who's talking to, but no, I mean like that's, that's crazy to hear. And I think that the chemistry between himself and Nancy Allen is just so natural. Now I don't think the movie could work. And I hate saying this because it's unfortunate that the character has to be dumbed down, but Sally is not a smart person in this movie. Um, the female character is not intelligent in the least. She works at a department store. She's a makeup artist. She makes little to no money. And the whole reason that she's a part of this whole plot in the first place is she's trying to make money because her job doesn't make her any. She gets involved with the wrong crowd and gets stuck in a hard situation and doesn't even realize that she's being manipulated. I mean, I think um, Nancy Allen described this character as a rag doll that the other characters just kind of very you know, true jerk very around. True. She she's very naive. Um, you know, she wears this like rabbit's foot pendant throughout the movie to show that. She, Listen, Lois Hassel, she's a bimbo. Let's just make it clear. It's a nuanced performance. Slight, I'd say new, slightly nuanced performance of a bimbo character. Um, because I'd say that's fair. Um, 
it, it, it is slightly unfortunate. I think if anything, that's one of the few things that I have to say negatively about the movie. Cause I love Nancy Allen. So, so much. I mean, uh, she's a sex kitten and, and dressed to kill, but she's intelligent and she can manipulate other characters in this movie. She's just kind of along for the ride. Like she's a requirement to be there and she doesn't really do anything that helps the story move along or anything like that. Um, I understand obviously a Jack's being fixated on her because he saved her life and it's a vertigo situation. Yeah. (laughs) And he had gone through something else previous to this. And this is another one of those themes that De Palma likes to interject in almost all of his movies is guilt. And, you know, Jack feeling the guilt from when he was on the police force and someone he cared about had lost their life. So in this case, he's like, well, I actually saved a life. So he's determined to figure out what actually happened to this governor and to keep him and Sally safe. And just going back to it, I didn't, I didn't know how you felt about it, but it's slightly unfortunate. I think in 1981 terms, the character is fine. Um, and I'm someone that actually stands up for older movies a lot on this show. And but you can never do a female character like that now. I mean, there would be pitchforks and fucking flames in front of the theater if you did that kind of character now. Especially, I mean, I don't know how you feel about the performance either. I mean, because Nancy Allen adopts this accent throughout the movie and this kind of this little lilting voice. And I don't what is that? Well, I don't know what that is. It's Philly. So it sounds New Yorkish to me. I don't. I've been to Philly a bunch of times. I don't hear that strong of an accent, so I don't really know what she was trying to do. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know if the voice is something that the character is putting on or if it's just Nancy Allen honestly portraying the character. Um, it, it threatens to become distracting, although I think that her performance is sincere enough to um, overcome that. And especially when it gets to the big moments where the character has to show a lot of emotion. There's a couple scenes where she's crying that are very convincing. Her screams at the end, extremely convincing. So um, I, I think I think that she manages to rise above some of those moments that kind of make you go, oh, is this is this really a good performance? It's a good performance, ultimately. I, 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 overall, yeah. I'm, I mean, I love Nancy Allen. I mean, uh, the work she did with her husband at the time, the Palma was always fantastic. And obviously much later on in one of the best movies ever made Paul Verhoeven's RoboCop. I mean, let's just face it. Absolutely. Most people just think of her from RoboCop, but uh, no, I mean like it's, there could have been more from her character. She didn't need to be as dumb as she acted. I think I'm not sure um, why Brian wrote her that way. It was his wife. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying you, you wrote this part. Uh, your lead actor wants your wife to to perform it, and it just seems like there could have been a little bit more intelligence, uh, you know, interjected sure. into that character. But that's this all was I'm saying. the she... final film that De Palma did with Nancy Allen. They divorced right. in 1984. Uh, but but their collaborations, Dress to Kill, Blowout, Carrie, um, all excellent. Yeah, 100. percent And you know, like one of my favorite scenes actually between Allen and Travolta are when they finally meet up for that drink that she promised him after he saved her life at the train station. And bro, what I would give right fucking now to get hammered shit faced 
in that bar with all that wood paneling and that neon rolling rock light. I'm like sitting there going, dude, one of the best things about this movie, which is with every movie from the seventies or eighties is the locations because obviously they shot everything practically in this movie. I could not spot a single set. Everything looked like a real office, a, a real building. They shot on the streets. I like, want to live. Everything was so real. I want to live in John Travolta's apartment in this movie. Dude. So retro. I love it. It's beautiful, but fucking tell me right now that a sound editor making B fucking slasher movies can afford that in Philadelphia downtown, even in 81. Come on. I got to pick that apart a little bit. Whatever. Whatever. They, they were like, yo, find one of our most rich friends in Philly. And let's who knows? Maybe it was even De Palma's fucking pad in Philly for the time. I don't know. Uh, gorgeous, beautiful location. You see a and, lot of great um, landmarks too. You have the Apollo Theater, which of course isn't there anymore, but um, you have 30th Street Station, the scene at the train station at the end. You have uh, Penn's Landing. There's so many great locations that really give the movie a real sense of geography. Yeah, 100%. And scale. And obviously, De Palma knowing Philly as well as he did, he knew exactly where he wanted to go, exactly what he wanted to do. And the camera work in the film is breathtaking. There's so many amazing crane shots. You mentioned the Apollo theater. There is a crane shot that starts on the street, seeing a large crowd. It goes up and you get to see the marquee into the window of the building. Um, it, it, It literally is a 1981 version of a Hitchcock movie. Even down to the fact that I'm not sure if you noticed this or not, boy sauce, but there is a shot when the Liberty Bell Strangler is fooling around with the car to try to make it look like different things happened to it than they actually did. There's a shot of a bridge in the background, and it's clearly an homage to the matte painting shot for Marnie, which also takes place in Philly. And I swear to God, ladies and gentlemen, I did not look this up on the internet. I literally saw the shot and was like, that looks like the shot from Marnie. And it's the same fucking bridge. It's the same thing, except for in Marnie, it's a matte painting. So well spotted. And before we get much further, let's take a quick promo break and we'll be right back with more De Palm cast. Justin, wake up. Skins, I done told you to keep quiet or I'll whoop you. Justin, it's time to start promoting the fifth annual live stream for The Cure. I can't believe it's been a year already. We've raised over $30,000 for cancer research over the past four years. You know what that means. We have to make this year our biggest year yet. This year, we're looking to add $15,000 to that total. And beyond. Join us May 19th through the 23rd for over 50 hours of live entertainment from podcast partners and content creators from around the world. With your help, we can continue to fight for a future immune to cancer. Learn more about this year's event at livestreamforthecure.com. Together, we can make a difference.
the Epic Film Guys podcast is fueled by our sponsor, Evil Tea, by the Evil Tea Company. Steeped in darkness, Evil Tea brings a sharp variety of tea flavors, featuring robust and creative blends for all those tea addicts out there. Use promo code EPICFILMGUYS for 15% off your first order. Please make sure to check out their website at EvilTeaCompany.com to find the right blend for you. And welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone listening. Thanks for tuning into DePalmCast, Justin. <gasps> yeah? <laughs> I want to ask you, what are some of your favorite moments or scenes from Blowout? Probably my favorite death scene in the movie is right before the climax of the film. When ah, another hooker randomly hanging out at the fucking train station. Uh... A sailor apparently couldn't get it up. I don't know how you read that. Did he? Did he come too fast? I think that was premature or did, ejaculation. Or, 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 or did he? Uh, okay, I'm like, well, he he shouldn't have been mad because that means he still got off. But either way, I'm not going there. Never had that problem myself. Mm-hmm. Just saying. But <laughs> I believe but then, you. Of course, <laughs> but let's go. I was like, he he, such a great villain. He just slaps like money against a phone booth. I know phone booths are before your time, Saucy. Um, I know what a phone booth is. Thank you. I know, but it was, listen, there were pay phones when you were born, but actual phone booths had pretty much kind of a moost, you know, out the picture by that point when he puts the, the money up there and lures the hooker out into the train station bathroom in which she's, you know, cleaning herself up in the stall and he strangles her. I had to comment at how beautiful the death was done <laughs> because it's not gratuitous, really. I mean, I love the fact that he holds his what looks like like a very thick piano wire in his watch. Yeah, and that's his weapon of choice, which is very, very interesting and very inventive. Yeah, I also love how throughout the movie you hear this winding and clicking sound. Yes. Um, and that kind of signals that the murderer is is, is there. Well, and then you find fi- the whole sound element, yeah. Exactly, and that's when you finally realize during that scene what that winding and clicking is. It's his watch. And then during the scene in the bathroom when he's strangling her, you realize that that's what he uses to kill his victims. And John Lithgow is just so fantastic in this role. I mean, you think of him you think of him as like a comedic actor from, you know, Third Rock from the Sun. But in this movie, he has such a, a menace to him. He has this duplicitous charm. The scene that you described when he's in the phone booth and he's like holding the money up so he can uh, lure the hooker. There's also the scene where Sally enters the train station and you see him looming over the proceedings, looking out the window. And it's just so sinister. And going back to the, the death of... We should probably call them sex workers now in 2021. Sure. I, I literally had to. Although con- she's I, literally I, credited as hooker. In I the know. Voice <laughs> House, God damn it. Look at me trying to be woke and fucking politically correct. And you're going to, of course, but I'm, I'm trying to be good. Okay. So the sex worker, AKA slut hooker, whore, whatever she is, um, who wanted just her 30 bucks for 30 minutes. The, the shot that pans out, from the stall of her feet dangling 
with Pino Donaccio's beautiful fucking score behind it. And it just zooms out for someone that loves to see death on screen. That's a thing of beauty. And I will go as far as saying that De Palma did it with class here. In comparison to what was being churned out at the time, the movie he was, you know, riffing on and parroting in the opening of the movie, there is a sense of class here. He's doing a thriller. Yes, there are elements of slasher and giallo in a bunch of his movies, but here he's like, no, look how beautiful death can be. I absolutely agree. Do you think there's any irony in the fact that John Lithgow's character is wearing a button that says, I love Liberty. Of course. (laughs) Yeah. He's definitely saying something. I don't know if it has to do with Reagan at the time or whatever it may be, but I mean, we see a lot of American flags. There's a shot of Sally literally in front of like the biggest American flag I've ever seen. And she's screaming for her life. And then we see her get grabbed by the neck and pulled away. So, I mean, like that's definitely there for a reason. That's not there by a random decision. It's there on purpose. Absolutely. Um, Well, as it happens, my favorite scene in the movie is when Travolta gets his hands on the footage of the incident that happened that night. And um, he's essentially recapping the evening by using the footage and uh, trying to sync up the sound. Yeah, he's cutting out the pictures out of the magazine that Carp had the photos he had taken. Yeah. Yeah. So he's essentially using a pencil to to trace the sounds of how he recorded things that night. And there we follow every single step as he basically assembles a movie of the film that was taken using the pictures and his recording. And there's this amazing shot where Travolta is overlaid on a shot of the tire blowing out as he visualizes it. That's an example of the split diopter lens that he uses. We mentioned it in our Carrie episode. We mentioned it in our Phantom of the Paradise episode. Yeah, there's the scene in the hospital when he's overhearing the, I believe it's the cop and the doctor talking. There's the scene where he's recording all the sounds um, on the bridge and you see the owl and Travolta both in focus. You see it when... John Lithgow character is watching the the lookalike come down the escalator and he's holding up her picture. So De Palma says he does this because he doesn't like when one aspect of the frame is in focus and another is blurred. He's like, what's the point of that? You want to see the whole picture clear. (laughs) I love that. God, I fucking love that. I I love him so much. Me too. uh, You know, like fascinating to hear talk about his craft. Just taking a segue real quick, you know, off subject a little bit. And we've talked about it a little bit on our other DePalmcast episodes. We missed out on meeting him. And I swear to God, I will say here on this show, Loisos, we will meet this genius. We will meet this auteur. We will meet this master of directors at some point. I hope so. I hope we get an uh, opportunity again. You know, I think if anything, it'll just be the most interesting thing ever just to hear him talk about making movies and storytelling, because as a great example here with blowout with one of his most accomplished films ever, and also one of his most ignored films uh, by the majority. I mean, I feel like you could walk on the street and ask 50 people, you ever seen blowout and maybe three people would probably answer. Yes. Um, that sucks. 
But if you asked 50 people if they saw Scarface, they'd say, yeah, I saw it a hundred times. I own every version of it. Um, it's un- I mean, it's it's cool that they they all own one of his movies, but um, even better when you can appreciate his lesser known and lesser appreciated movies. And uh, I think I really do think Blowout is probably, I dare I say this, maybe his masterpiece. Well, I, I've uh, used masterpiece every I single know, podcast episode. We use it all the time. But I mean, like in terms of what he's really trying to do here, like I said earlier on in the discussion, um, he's trying to put because he wrote it himself. He's trying to put so much into this movie and. I feel like more of it works than not. I mean, it's, yeah. it's very hard to critique this. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I shit on Phantom of the Paradise a little bit, and rightly so. Um, but here, it's hard to find things wrong with this other than like, you know, uh, Sally's characterization and Nancy's performance as that character. Everything else really works to a T and almost perfectly. I agree. I mean, it's, again, it's incredibly technically accomplished. It has one of the most memorable endings of all time. We have to talk about the ending because there's this slow motion climax that's just so haunting and beautiful. John Travolta, you know, confronts the killer and then you realize that Sally has been killed and he's cradling her body. It's this incredibly emotional moment, especially augmented with Pino DiNaggio's score. And there's fireworks going off in the background, it should be cause one for celebration, most, oh, but dude, it's one of the so most beautiful. Oh God, it's tragic, but it's also beautiful. And every single time I watch this movie, I wait for that scene. Yeah, because it builds up so perfectly. I mean, what a perfect climax to a film. Our hero, the hero that we've been rooting for since the first 15 minutes of the film. He didn't make it in time. Yeah. So once again, Jack is responsible for a death. He's feeling the guilt. This time it's someone he cares about even more because he's so invested in making sure their names are cleared, that they're safe. It's a downer of an ending for sure. Well, that's the, yeah, that's the ultimate tragedy of the movie because, you know, Jack has gone through all this sacrifice. He, you know, people around him are dying and, all of that just for a scream in a horror movie that he captured. That's what he has to show for all of this pain that he's been through. I mean, this, like I said earlier, the scream is a running joke because they're looking for that perfect scream to insert into the horror movie. And what's brilliant about this is that there's setup and payoff. It's just that the payoff results in tragedy because it's so heartbreaking to see John Travolta have to watch the movie with Sally's scream inserted in the movie it's so poetic, I, could, I can't imagine it ending any other way. The reason why the movie ends the way that it does, because you imagine if he had shown this to a test audience, there, there'd be no way that the ending would have been kept the same. But apparently the producer of the movie uh, became the head of the studio during the production of this movie. And so because the producer of the film was head of the studio, they figured they should release it unaltered. So um, it was released as it was, and that's probably a big reason as to why the movie did not perform well, because it is such a downer. Well, no, Loisos, it's not one of the reasons. It's not partially the reasons. It is the reason why it didn't do well. Apparently, from what I've read, it was due to bad word of mouth because people saw it and they were like, what a downer. But for me now, in retrospect, 
I appreciate it. De Palma wants to touch on a nerve and make his audience walk away emotionally affected by these characters. I know it crushed me personally, but yes, that is the reason the film floundered at the box office. It's an extremely bleak ending. And dude, even with slasher movies at the time, you got your last scare, but you walked away happy because you were like, oh, I got scared again. In this movie, the drama overtakes the gore and the violence. These characters that you're so invested in, you're like, whoa, it's it's a very somber and uncomfortable thing to experience. Um, and I don't necessarily think that audiences were ready for it in 1981. And audiences now for that kind of ending may not even be up for it as we speak. I mean, I don't know other than hitting the nerve what De Palma was trying to do, but I'm glad he did it. It'd be interesting to see uh, what kind of legacy the film would have had it been financially successful. You know, I mean, the movie was made for under, under $20 million but for the time for a movie like this still expensive yeah very definitely. expensive yeah um but what could that have done for his career i mean he very shortly after he didn't make another movie until 83 with scarface so i'd love to hear him talk more about this now you had said that the interview that he did for the criterion release was very in-depth so hmm. maybe our listeners after they listen to this episode should go check that out go by the criterion blu-ray or i believe it's on youtube in its entirety definitely i think one of his best films one of his most entertaining i mean we didn't even really talk about the fact that the suspense throughout the movie for the most part uh, I think minus maybe about halfway through the movie where it starts to slow down a little bit, but just a little bit because the runtime is brisk. It's I mean, based on the, all the Brian De Palma films that I've seen, I've never been bored watching a single one of his movies. I mean, his plots are simple and easy to follow, but they're never uninvolving. I mean, I never feel like my intelligence is being insulted. I feel like he respects his audience and doles out the information um, at a at a really efficient pace. I think the movie really ticks along. There's great tension. I think this movie works on just about every level, especially technically. One sh- more shot I want to mention, this masterful, uh, dizzying shot where uh, John Travolta's character discovers that all of his tapes have been erased and the camera is just swirling around. Dude, I almost threw the fuck up. <laughs> I almost puked, dude. Well, that, that scene creates this this disorientation because it's the panic of... Travolta discovering that all his tapes have been have been fucked with and of course De Palma places his camera you know in the middle of it and you can't have a crew around uh because the camera's whirling around so he was actually positioned he and the cinematographer were actually uh positioned overlooking the set and he was cueing everybody to when to act and when to come in and I just think that sequence is so brilliantly done well the kind of confusion the kind of sporadic attitude you would have towards not being able to find what you're looking for that's what I fucking do when I'm literally looking for 
Halloween three season of the witch on Blu-ray in my collection. I'm like, where is it? God damn it. Where did you put it? And I'm yelling at people and they're like, we never touched that. And I'm like freaking out. You've seen me do this before on numerous occasions. And I'm literally looking through my entire collection for this movie. And then I eventually find it. I'm like, Oh, it's fine. But you feel that feeling where you're like literally spinning because you can't find what you're looking for. And in terms of the story in the film, it's so important because the whole basis of what he's trying to do, he's trying to show the police and uncover this conspiracy for assassination. He's got it. He's figured it out. Why don't you believe me? It's even more powerful. So I 100% agree with you. I just love that shot so much. There's just so many beautiful camera shots in this movie and it's just gorgeous to look at. So I'll stop there. I said it with Carrie. I, I said it with Phantom of the Paradise, and I'm saying it again with Blowout. Masterpiece. <laughs> and we'll keep fucking saying it. I feel like for the most part, I mean, obviously this whole series is a celebration of, you know, the master of suspense, the modern master of suspense, Brian De Palma. But I mean, we may or may not have issues with things here and there. I mean, like, we will see what happens as we revisit these films. But for the most part, it's 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 a hard to hate on something that's as near perfect as blowout. I mean, aside from some weak characterization and maybe performance slightly, I mean, it's gripping. It pulls you in. It's immersive. I mean, I would recommend it to literally everybody. And I'm happy to hear that film classes are showing this to young up and coming film lovers uh, as an example of perfect cinema because and not only is it a fantastic thriller that just that just grips you and entertains you but there is on an academic level things to glean from this movie in terms of filmmaking technique and deeper motivations behind it as well so De Palma has yet to disappoint me but maybe we'll talk about some of his later films maybe on the show eventually uh I think originally we planned this to be like a year-long series but hey we could keep going forever. I, I'd be happy to keep talking about his movies because I think that he's one of the most underappreciated and underrated directors. That's the whole reason behind this series. When I sat down with you one night drunkenly uh, in my apartment saying, listen, you know what we no should one, do. <laughs> no one talks about this fucking dude aside from Scarface. And uh, we need to do it. And that's why we're so happy to do it. We're happy you're listening and we appreciate you. Loisos, we're all over the internet. If this is their first time listening ever, or if it's like the one millionth time they've listened, uh, please tell them where they can find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Epic Film Guys. Feel free to join our Patreon, become a patron, help support us. And we have a ton of awesome perks for patrons, including patron updates, outtakes, early access episodes, and also something called the EFG watch list, where you can suggest movies for us to review. And uh, we choose a movie every month and we have to review it no matter what. We actually just put out an episode for Color Out of Space, a featured review for the EFG watch list, a clip of which I'm going to play right now just to give you a little taste of what's in store for you on Patreon. Nicholas Cage doesn't quite go 100% Cage, but he's not really normal Cage either. But he does this weird accent at several points during the film that 
I don't know if it's intended to be a real accent or Dude, if it's just Nicolas Cage saucy. riffing. I don't know. I think the bourbon in that glass was real and they were just letting him do his thing. And I think he had <laughs> a few too many because that accent doesn't sound intentional because I only heard it come out three times and I did notice what you're referring to. I think he just fucked up and they just kept it in. I'm just, I don't hear an even accent throughout the whole movie. No. I just hear it like a few times. Like maybe he was doing another movie or preparing for something else and he forgot which movie he was in. <laughs> it's entirely possible. It is Nicolas Cage because listen, Cage does Cage now. I don't think he gives a shit if he's getting paid. Mandy was the one off at this point because he hasn't done anything since then. I mean, aside from this, that's really kind of sparked the interest of people. I think, except for you, you saw it, the the Chuck E. Cheese ripoff movie or whatever. Oh God, the, Wally's Wonderland. Wonderland or that, whatever. That movie made it clear that he doesn't care. And we couldn't let this episode go by without thanking our patrons for supporting the show, supporting our endeavor. We appreciate you so much, and especially our executive producers, Jared Taylor and Johnny Nye, with their very generous monthly donations. We literally could not do this show without you. And once again, thank you. That's about it. That's it for this episode. If you're a patron, you're definitely going to get something special this week in terms of a possible epic previews. But for now, we are signing out on this episode of DePalmcast. We look forward to giving you more DePalmcast episodes. As you can tell, we enjoy doing these. It's great to revisit an auteur's filmography in particular, someone that literally wears his heart on his sleeve, gives us suspense, terror, and uh, political intrigue. Yes, boobs. Lots of boobs. Until next time. We will see you at the movies. <laughs>